I'm Lucy Marcus. And I'm Stefan Wolf. Welcome to Navigating the Vortex. We are delighted to be with you for our weekly catch-up and a deep dive into some of the most important and complex issues of today and tomorrow. First, a big thank you. Since its launch, the Navigating the Vortex newsletter and podcast have been read and listened to by people from 41 countries and across 20 U.S. states. We love hearing from you. This week, we even had feedback from readers in Pakistan about our piece in Afghanistan with insights of their own. We hope you'll continue to share Navigating the Vortex far and wide, and please be in touch with your questions and feedback. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Afghanistan, Northern Ireland, boardrooms, accountability, China, and how they are all related. So a look back and an update on some of what we wrote and talked about this week. Steph, this week we wrote an on-our-radar piece entitled, The Future of Afghanistan Hangs in the Balance. Can you give a quick rundown on that? Yes, of course. So all of this was prompted by the release of a Chinese foreign ministry position paper on Afghanistan. And that was a really interesting one in the sense that of the 11 points that the Chinese made, and half, six in total, were all concerned about terrorism and the terrorist threat that Afghanistan still poses and how this can be best mitigated by China, by its partners in the region and further away. So I think that tells us something about what's actually going on in Afghanistan at the moment. And here, very clearly, Taliban politics since their takeover in August 2021 has been very repressive. We probably all have heard about the really harsh policies of exclusion against women and girls. But also, I think there's a broader humanitarian crisis still in Afghanistan, and that was also confirmed by a UN assessment that came also out last week of the likely further worsening humanitarian and economic situation in Afghanistan. And they actually connected that in a really interesting way to the fact that nothing will get better in Afghanistan if the Taliban changed their policy of exclusion against women and children. So I think this reaffirms something that you have been writing about quite a lot, namely the fact that there is really an economic gain to be made from full inclusion of women in the in the workforce, but then, of course, also girls into the education system. No question about it. One of the things we didn't write about, but that was noteworthy, was around Northern Ireland. President Biden visited Northern Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Agreement, but it also highlighted the ongoing stalemate in the region as a result of Brexit, with one political party dominated by hardliners and supported by die-hard Brexiteers in Westminster blocking the restoration of the power-sharing assembly and executive that the agreement set up. What was particularly interesting was the connection between politics and economic development that Biden drew, pointing out that since 1998, GDP in the region had doubled and U.S. investment has reached $2 billion. What's also interesting in this context is that Joe Biden's economic envoy for Northern Ireland, Joe Kennedy, hinted at a potential follow-up visit later in the year that could unlock a further $6 billion of U.S. investment. But at the same time, he also noted that U.S. corporations always sought stability as a prerequisite for their investment. 
Do you agree and do you think that this gives the private sector also some leverage to work towards the kind of political stability that it craves? Without question, business and investment have played a big part in creating a stable environment, both as a push and pull force. Businesses of all sizes, from SMEs to multinationals, have a big role to play in promoting local economic development. If there's a strong economic stability, it means that people have something at stake and they won't be happy to give it up for anyone. What are some of the things we'll be keeping an eye on in the coming week? Well, I'll be focusing first and foremost on Ukraine. There are three issues that I will be keeping an eye on. First, I'll be writing a piece on various countries' attitudes to what it might take to end the war and how this is creating divisions, obviously, between the West and China, but also with the global South. And interestingly, also tensions within the West itself between those arguing for negotiations now and those arguing for a military victory first. This is all obviously tied to the much talked about and apparently impending Ukrainian spring offensive. And I'll keep following any developments in this respect as well. Finally, I'm also working on a somewhat longer paper with a Ukrainian colleague on the country's recovery needs in the short term and the long term. So what about the costs and who will pay for it? I'm linking it back to high risk, high gain, doing the right thing. Where does that all fit in? Well, the costs are said to be stratospheric, whatever that might mean. What we can say for certain is that they are already in the hundreds of billions, whether that's dollars or pounds or euros, and they keep growing. It will take years to rebuild the country. Just consider the pictures of Bahmut, a city that was previously home to some 70,000 people, but that has been fiercely contested for many months now and been completely leveled in the process. So there's a huge need but also a significant opportunity. Now, what I'm wondering about is whether this is actually something that corporations have on their radar. Should we expect anything from the AGMs in this regard, or will Ukraine and the war there mostly feature as a risk to their bottom line, not so much as an opportunity to do good and to do well at the same time? Well, for most companies, this is sitting firmly on their risk registers. That is the same for small firms all the way through to multinationals. However, there is no doubt that the crisis has compelled countries and companies to think of new ways of doing things, be it energy production and moving to speed up alternative energy production and sources, through to agriculture research and development to diversify food sources and ensure that there is not dependence on only one source. So for many, it has spurred an environment of investment in blue skies thinking that might have gone a lot slower without a crisis to prompt it. Also, we can't leave out the defense industry who are having a bit of a windfall. Steph, what about Sudan? There's been a lot of news about Sudan this week. Well, this is a real tragedy, but one that was entirely predictable. The current power struggle between the army and the so-called rapid support forces that's a paramilitary formation that grew out of the notorious Janjaweed forces that terrorized Darfur for the past almost two decades. This is much about political control as it is about the associated economic opportunities that come with it. The rapid support forces and their leader, who is widely known as Hemeti, are not simply a paramilitary group, but also a business empire. That suspiciously sounds like Russia's Wagner group. 
It does, and there are most likely ties between them going back more than a decade when the Wagner Group provided training for the Rapid Support Forces. It also puts this spotlight again more generally on Russia and Wagner in Sudan and beyond. In what way? Russia has an agreement to build a navy base in Port Sudan, which is Sudan's major gateway to the Red Sea. For Russia, it's also the only other foreign naval base that they have apart from Tartus in Syria. Now, I don't think that Russia has a particular stake for now in who wins Sudan's civil war, but rather that it's over quickly and that there is some stability again in which Russia can keep developing its presence in Sudan. And what about the Wagner Group? Well, they are heavily invested in Sudan's gold mines, which contribute massively to the country's exports, by some accounts as much as 70%. And that generally appears to be the business model of Wagner, provide security services and in return benefit from countries' natural resources such as gold and diamonds. This has been a recurrent pattern for years in countries like Mali, the Central African Republic, and of course Sudan, but also other hotspots of conflict and instability. It's a high-risk, high-reward business module, but with out ESG or accountability, don't you think? Unfortunately, it's a textbook example of the worst of all possible business practices. It is the opposite of everything we like to see from responsible businesses and certainly wouldn't pass muster with any reputable investors. Well, speaking of investors, reputable or otherwise, I know how much you look forward to AGM season every year. You have been writing and talking about the shifting landscape of boardrooms and AGMs for the past 15-some years. What are you seeing this year and how are some of the things we have been discussing showing themselves in the boardroom? Well, you're right. It is my favorite season of the year. Over the past several years, we've seen real progress in boards and companies being held to account, from small green shoots to the full-blown movement of the shareholder spring. Over the years, companies have made all kinds of commitments to improve how they are working. Environmental commitments, high executive pay commitments, better corporate citizenship, gender diversity, the list goes on and on. This year, there have been a couple of new issues that have been raised, but the larger overarching theme is something a bit different, and that is, in a word, accountability. So you're saying that organizations have made promises to shareholders, often quite concrete ones, on a wide variety of issues. But can you give an example of how the drive for accountability is going to play out this year? Well, let's look at Nestle. Over the years, Nestle has made commitments around health and their portfolio of products. And this year, Nestle gets points for transparency. They publish their own report on themselves, granted, about the nutritional value for their entire global portfolio. The next step, though, links back to their health commitments. So this year, investors pressured the company to be less dependent on products high in sugar and saturated fat. This comes with an ethical and practical side. Less than half of the products Nestle sells would be considered healthy. The time when there is a deep concern for the health of populations worldwide, and at the same time, in an effort by governments to discourage consumption of these products, there has been an increase in taxation on high sugar products and all kinds of advertising curbs. Thus, a case can be made for being a good corporate citizen at the same time as looking after the bottom line for Nestle to shift its strategy. 
Let's not forget that Nestle operates all over the world. So the choices they make can have a big impact on the diets and health of huge swathes of the global population. On a larger scale, given all that is happening in the world, multinationals play a big, perhaps even outsized role in international affairs. We wrote about it this week in reference to China and Afghanistan. Given that it is AGM season, what role do investors and shareholders play, particularly in relation to accountability? Well, multinationals are powerful, and you can feel positively or negatively about that, but it is a fact. And as the saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility. All businesses from the corner shop to multinationals have an impact on the communities in which they operate. Sometimes it can be profoundly positive or profoundly negative. Companies of any size have a responsibility to uphold ethical standards and respect the laws and customs of the countries and communities in which they operate, including developing countries. Well, this kind of takes us back to Afghanistan as well, but also more broadly to conflict and post-conflict environments where the risks may be high, but the rewards even higher. But how picky should corporations be when it comes to their investments in places that have dire human rights records? And should they do something about that? Absolutely. This is part of the accountability that investors are demanding from companies. There are some very specific responsibility that multinationals must have at the forefront of their strategy and, importantly, in their operational monitoring. So, as we've discussed before, respect for human rights. Multinationals must ensure that their business practices respect human rights, including the right to life, freedom from discrimination, and the right to work in safe and healthy conditions. This includes issues like supply chain monitoring to ensure that organizations associated with the company are also following these principles. I give you Apple or some of the large fashion houses. Another is following local laws. Multinational companies should comply with laws and regulations of the countries in which they operate. This includes adhering to environmental regulations, labor law, and other applicable laws. But again, depending on where they are operating, those laws will be the minimum, not the ceiling. Also, avoiding exploitation. Multinationals, at the very least, should avoid exploiting workers, including child labor, forced labor, and unsafe working conditions. Companies should also avoid taking advantage of local communities and resources. Also, protect the environment. Multinational companies should take steps to protect the environment in the areas where they operate. This includes reducing emissions, minimizing waste, and using sustainable practices. And as we talked about before in the context of Northern Ireland, promote local economic development. Multinationals should contribute to the economic development of the communities in which they operate. And this can include creating jobs, investing in local infrastructure, and supporting local businesses. Does not sound like anything that the Wagner Group is doing in Sudan. Many companies have made commitments around this issue in the past five to 10 years, thanks to more transparency and shareholder activism. This year and next year will be the time when they need to show their work. That's where the accountability comes in, not just with happy case studies and glossy pictures and endorsements, but with cold, hard numbers and facts, and investors are not going to accept anything less. 
Many investors now have very clearly stated guidelines for where they will put their money and what sort of corporate behavior they will find acceptable and what sort of behavior will bring them to withdraw their substantial funds. That can and will make a huge difference in encouraging better corporate citizenship. Good for the world and good for the bottom line. Accountability. There's so much more to talk about, but we'll have to keep it for our pieces during the week and next week's podcast. That's it for this week. And a big thank you again to all our subscribers and listeners in 41 countries. If you haven't already signed up to receive Navigating the Vortex delivered straight to your inbox, you can find us by clicking on the link of the podcast player you are listening to this on or Googling us. We are hosted on all your favorite podcasting outlets, including Apple and Spotify. You can sign up for our newsletter where you'll get our columns, interviews, as well as alerts for new episodes of this Navigating the Vortex podcast. All of the Navigating the Vortex on our radar pieces are available as audio briefs on the podcast. And we'll also be producing rapid responses prompted by breaking news and subscribers get those delivered straight to their inbox as well. If you're already a subscriber, thanks so much. Please share Navigating the Vortex with anyone you think might find it of interest. Your ratings and sharing help to make us better. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Talk to you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.